you have stumbled onto the inaugural, the antecedent, the primal genial, the premiere, the first episode of the Strikecast. Okay, so the reason we're doing this is because we wanted to give you, fans of Strymon, um, a chance to see behind the curtain and learn more about the people that make your favorite Strymon products. And also, um, we wanted to give you a chance to be able to ask us questions and leave us comments. So in order to do that, we've actually come up with two different ways to do that. So we have an email address you can send comments and questions to. That's strycast at strymon.net. And we also have a call-in number. It's area code 310-817-0404. And if you are international, remember to put a plus one in front of that number. But uh, I should also say that operators are not standing by. Just, uh, you know, give us your comments, give us your questions, and we will try to answer those on subsequent podcasts. But today, I am extremely happy Extremely excited to announce our very first guest for the first podcast is none other than Pete Selly, our DSP genius co-founder, the guy who is absolutely responsible for uh, the way that our gear sounds. So I want to bring him on. Everybody say hello, Uncle Pete. Uh, And there we go. Wait, there we go. There's Pete. There he is. Hello, Pete. Hey, Sean. How you doing? It's story to tell. It's too early to tell. You look fantastic. You look like you're uh, in a beach house uh, on the edge of Spain. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, it's a problem. I guess it's cold at the beach because I'm wearing a hat. Yeah, I'm wearing a hat. I'm wearing my my baked potato T-shirt only because I got to figure that I'm I got to represent. But I'm freezing. It's right. it's okay. 25 here today. So um, cool. anyway, so thank you for coming here and thank sure. you for doing this. Um, I, I think this is going to be a fun thing that that fans of Strymon will sort of get a kick out of, and we're going to talk about guitars and and music and technology and probably baseball, knowing you guys. And, uh, you know, I, I think it'll be something that people will get something out of. So was, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, your role at Strymon, um, you know, in a, in a short little bit, how would you describe what it is that you do before we dig into how you got there? Um, I'd say um, I am the sound designer, and uh, up until the last few years, I was the the sound algorithm, uh, the only sound algorithm developer. So I would write the code and then do the you know kind of critical sound design to craft the, the sounds of Strymon. Um, so. Th- the last two or three years, we've had um, a couple of other people get involved with uh, with that in, in some of our, our products. But um, yeah, and I want to talk about that in a minute because I, I think that 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 is probably um, something that required some adjustment. You know, uh, you know, once you, if you're the only person whose fingers are in the code uh, and only person that decides, you know, uh, how things sound, it's probably got to be tricky and a little bit of an adjustment to let some of that control go, you know, is, was that difficult? Um, no, the way it came about actually, um, uh, Greg, um, who will probably be a guest on 
one of these subsequent subsequent podcasts, I would imagine. Uh, Greg Stock, the uh, one of the co-founders, was interested in um, exploring uh, the DSP uh, capabilities for doing distortion and amp sounds. Um, So he kind of took that on as as a project that uh, he did, I guess, kind of a, a little bit on the side at first until he did, so you, he, did he not tell you he was doing it at first? Did he sort of like, hey, I'm just not, I'm going to work <laughs> well, on this stuff, not tell people? Honestly, I think he, he was kind of dropping hints that I should probably start looking at things like that. And um, <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't take the hint. So uh, he decided, <laughs> well, you know, he'll do it himself. So it, it worked out well because also, you know, he is, you know, a guru of all things analog as well. So he had um, a lot to draw f- from, from his analog experience of, you know, circuit design and, and amplifiers and things. So, um, and he's a quick study. So he, you know, quickly, uh, I mean, it was, it was impressive. Um, and uh, so he got up and running and then became really an expert in the, um, the you know, shark DSP programming and then, uh, you know, coding in general so that, uh, you know, we weren't, he wasn't stepping on my toes. In fact, he actually approached, and approaches coding from an actual point of view of someone who writes code and has, you know, some amount of, you know, pride in in, in the the code in, ter- in the sense of, you know, how it's presented in format and how it would look. Whereas I kind of, you know, I really just write equations. I write math equations, you know, right. to to hopefully make them, you know, and adjust them until they sound good. Um, but I, I the finer points of actually writing code. Like, you know, that's not my strong point. You know, I get presented with a, a do code here. That's what we call it, where the system's all set up. And it's like, you know, the background and the the the, the firmware and the everything's in place. And, and I just say, okay, the input samples come in here and I'm, I can do whatever I want and I send them out here. So everything from that point is a complete mess, but it's... <laughs> I, my, 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 you know, my fallback has always been, you know, um, you know, we, we make products that produce sound. We don't, you know, we aren't, we aren't selling, you know, the, the actual code itself or, you know, so it's, um, it's something that, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's like having a, a room that looks neat, but you open the closets and then, you know, you know, the bowling ball is going to fall on your oh, head or something. Um, it's just like this room. Yeah, exactly. If you were to move the camera a millimeter, Either way, it would be like, oh my God, is that underwear? Yeah, I mean, it's just you know, you don't, <laughs> you know, you don't want to see that stuff. So, so did that? Did that help? Like, did that? Uh, did him sort of working on on stuff that was a bit in your sandbox at first? Did that? You know, um, obviously, it, it it freed you up to do other stuff, I'm sure. But but that was probably kind of a fun collaboration in some ways. The way I think about what you do. Is, is a similar thing to, to me thinking about music production or, or thinking about working on records or whatever. For the longest time, you were like the artist and the recording engineer and the mix engineer and the mastering engineer. And it's that's a lot of jobs to have for one person. But at the same time, it means that there's all sorts of benefits from it, I'm sure. You know, you don't have to tell the guy who's coding what it's supposed to sound like because you know. Right. And, and that was the... Um the adjustment once 
Greg got the systems in place. And this was, um, it started with the Sunset and Riverside and then um, onto Iridium. But for those projects, um, we had a little more of a um, kind of a divided um, approach where in, in essence, he was, he was kind of, he was kind of the engineer, the, 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 the DSP engineer, and I was the sound designer um, because the code he wrote was so kind of like, you know, uh, presented in, in a way that is really efficient, but a way that was foreign to me. I I couldn't go in and kind of like mess with this code. Plus, you probably wouldn't want me to because you'd be like, <laughs> no, don't don't do that. But so we we had a collaboration where um, he actually designed some uh, kind of sound design tools for me, where there would be in another interface or you know calling some other math programs. I could make changes in it, and then it would get compiled. And you know those variables and parameters would then get you know dumped into the code. So um, especially in Iridium, that was how that system worked. And um, like the the room knob on Iridium, which is a really powerful you know uh, uh, part of the um, Iridium experience. Uh, you know there was just basically it was a, it was a, a MATLAB or actually Octave, which is the the open source version of uh, MATLAB. Right. He wrote a, a, a script where I could go in and I could uh, I could take so that those reverbs are um, a combination of impulse room impulse responses and some algorithmic, algorithmic right yeah. and so basically I could call in the impulse responses I want I could I could modify those impulse responses in various ways and then there was a, a very powerful algorithmic reverb that I could you know, this, this was basically all in a kind of a control set that. Greg provided for me in this program, but so I, I used that to kind of craft those the three different you know room sizes by you know just kind of uh, trying those parameters and then you know sending it over to Iridium and then like listening and going ah, okay I think we need to you know bring the this tail in a little bit earlier so um, you know so from that standpoint you know really you know Greg was like the uh, the electrical engineer that the the coder the programmer and really I was just kind of like this, the sound guy, you know, to like, okay, let's kind of doctor this up and, and, and make it, uh, you know, the way, uh, you know, the way we want it to be for a final product. I'll get back to this in a second, because I think that, that part of what you're a very rare human being and that you are highly technical, but also a very creative spirit and a creative soul and think about things in that way, much like we're talking about beautiful code versus ugly code. You know, it's like there's there's a very there's a very different sort of a mindset between the two things. But I want to go all the way back for a minute and just start because all this stuff in your career, my career, whatever, just happened because we played guitar. And so how did the guitar thing start for you? Like some people they have like an older brother or an uncle or a cousin or something that introduces them some. You know, did did you have when you started out playing guitar, you know, I think about you know, I watch you play in these videos and I see, you know, R&B things. I see rock things. I see you play blues things. I see you play Travis picking all, you know, things sometimes, you know, so it's obvious that you, you listen to a bunch of music. Were you a listener first? Were you a guitar player first? How did that stuff happen? Um, I probably, I'd say I was, um, well, I was I was a clarinet player first. Is <laughs> actually where no chicks, right? No chicks, zero <laughs> chicks. Yeah. Um, so that you know that was I was in the you know the high school band and the you know the 
all the middle, you know, all the, I started playing clarinet when I was in fourth grade or whatever, when they say, Hey, okay, you know, you're old enough, you know, kids now can play an instrument. And they probably won't, you know, you're, you're old enough to get ostracized. Stuff. Yeah. You're old yeah. enough to be ostracized for the right. instrument you play. <laughs> so, so I started doing that and that's what, you know, I learned, you know, I learned how to read music and, and learned about music. Um, and um, I was, I was interested in playing and learning how to play piano. Like, you know, when I was like 14 or so, but um, we didn't have a piano in the house and we weren't, weren't going to get a piano in the house. And um, I had a neighbor down the street who um, he was the dad of another person in the band and he had uh, an old acoustic guitar. And he said, Hey, if you want to learn how to play, I'll, I'll show you some stuff and you can, you can, you know, use this guitar. And um, well, that's cool. So that's, yeah. So I, I started, uh, you know, that's why I started uh, this guitar. I remember, I'm sure it was a combination of, you know, the first time I played a guitar and it was also uh, an acoustic guitar that wasn't particularly good. So, I mean, yeah, I remember just trying to like, you know, play it and, you know, first fret F, you know, on the, on the low oh, it's painful as heck. It's like, yeah. yeah. So, um, but that's, you know, that's where guitar started uh, for me. And I started, um, so it was like, I guess it was like 14 maybe. And then I, um, I guess I was listening to like, um, like uh, Chicago uh, in that time because the combination of you know I mean well Chicago was awesome but also you know yeah. the horn section the, the so they had the you know awesome horn arrangements the you know Terry Kath playing guitar um, so it really appealed to me and then I think when I was in ninth grade my oldest brother got me uh, Jeff Beck Wired for for Christmas and so I kind of like. I, you know, I, I was quickly down the path of like guitar heroish kind of music. And so I was listening to, you know, Steve Morris and the Dixie Dregs and Al Demiola. And um, I got into Alan Holdsworth and all yeah. those guys just like, um, you know, were it was just amazing to me to, to you know, listen to people at that level, you know, play, you know, do what they can do with the instrument. So that uh, that's kind of where I went. Uh, I remember when Van Halen's first album came out. Uh, my brother got it on vinyl, and uh, so we listen for first time I'd heard it, and, and I hear eruption. Right. And um, my brother says, "How how does he play that fast?" And I said, "Oh, I said no one can play that fast." I said, "It's all like studio tricks." I said, "Whatever." He said, right. "It's not." I said, "I said oh, I said no one can actually. He can't actually play that." And then, you know, didn't take too long before I figured out somehow that oh. Holy cow, he's actually playing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a great Al Stewart, you know, Year of the Cat, Al Stewart. Year of the oh, Cat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, um, he has a great story. Apparently, he grew up with Robert Fripp, like in the same village. Okay. And Fripp used to come into their local guitar store and, uh, you know, just to, like we all did, you know, everyone hangs out at the guitar store. And Fripp would come in as a young kid and try to play all the Les Paul stuff. But he didn't realize at the time that it was all double, that it was all sped up. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> trying to play all this stuff, and it just he's like, it, but that's probably why he started. That's why he developed yeah. Fripertronics because uh, <laughs> exactly, it's like I can't play that fast. What the heck, you know? But of course, Robert eventually figured that out. But but it's just funny how the perception of something on a record, especially, you know, and and I, I think that that our generation pre-internet, you know, didn't have a lot of the sort of 
stuff that people just absolutely take for granted. Like you, you know, a new product comes out and you go on YouTube that day and you learn yeah. everything about it. And a new record comes out and you find out about a band and then you can go down a rabbit hole for three days researching everything about them and where they're from and who. Yep. And back in those days, like you had the record cover and you had the liner notes and that was it. Like, you know, you couldn't call anyone to figure out what village Robert Fripp was from or 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 what studio Eddie Van Halen recorded that in, you know. So so that must have been a really eye opener for you to sort of listen to something like that and just have your mind blown, especially as a former clarinetist. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, so I figured it out on clarinet. Uh, I, I was going to actually I had a lot better chance of playing it on clarinet at that point than I did on guitar. I still actually yeah, I, tapping is not it's never. No. Uh, no, it's never, it's, never come into my uh, skill set. Was there anything that guitar taught you about music that was different than what clarinet did? And the reason I ask is because I started on trumpet. No, um, we probably the, the thing that helped me a little bit, because um, I mean, with, with clarinet, since I'd been playing, I don't know, like, you know, for four or five years, I guess, before I picked up a guitar, you know, I, I, I knew you know, how to read music, um, very well. And I, uh, you know, I was reasonably, I don't know where I first started learning about music theory, but, you know, maybe just from books or something, but, um, you know, I, I kind of knew about triads and chords and, you know, structure like that. So I'd say when, when I picked up the guitar, that was an advantage I did have in the sense was like, I understood the mu music. I just, um, or, you know, at least to a certain extent, um, sure. but I didn't, I didn't have, you know, the, the facility, the, the dexterity to actually play the instrument when I picked it up. But I like, I kind of knew like, you know, what a scale, how, how we would play a scale, what the notes were. And, um, right. and, and the That's guy who was, the guy who showed me, the guy who lent me the guitar, um, you know, we, I don't know if it was a Mel Bay, but, but we, but we actually started from a, you know, guitar book. So I, you know, I was, and it wasn't tab, it was, you know, so I was reading, the sheet music on the guitar and stuff. So, um, you was know, it like I, classical I, stuff at first? Was it like Carcassia etudes and, and it, it was, um, you know, um, you know, my dog has, has fleas or whatever. I mean, it was, they, they were like, kind of like silly, <laughs> dumb little songs that, you know, sort of spot run, C spot run musical. Yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. right. They just serve the purpose, purpose to like get you reading a note, reading and, and playing a little bit. So, um, so that was good. But so, I, you know, my, uh, you know, introduction to the guitar was, you know, was from a kind of a, you know, I guess, traditional music standpoint in that sense, you know, scales and sheet music and reading and stuff. That leads me to believe that you were probably always a, a fairly technical person in your brain. You, were you the kind of person that just took apart stuff, sewing machines and, and engines well, and stuff like that? It was a little more, um, for me, it was like a little more cerebral. Like, I mean... I was always like a good student and kind of like, you know, gravitated towards, you know, math and, and science and stuff. But um, I didn't grow up in an environment where I was like, you know, taking apart machines and, and rebuilding them. I, you know, it was more like, I don't know what that's all about. You know, uh, I, you know, I don't want to touch that. You know, I tr you know, you get a transistor radio and it's like, I don't want to touch that. I might get electrocuted. You know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you so, never got yeah. yelled at from your mother tearing apart her sewing machine. Good for you. That's an no, experience no. you missed. Good. I was doing things. I was more like, you know, solving Rubik's Cube without someone telling me how to do it kind of thing, as nice. opposed to doing something actually, you know, um, practical. When did the when did the signal processing or when did the 
the love of effects and and music technology stuff. I mean, did that start like the first time you heard an effect on a guitar and go, bloody hell, that's amazing. It was probably about, I'd been playing this bad acoustic guitar for about a year. And uh, I went over to um, the neighbor's house and he had a, um, it wasn't a Harmony. What was the, uh, the Sears uh, guitar? Silvertone. 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 He had a Silvertone uh, guitar and a Silvertone amp. And I'd never played an electric guitar uh, you know, through an amp, it's just been this, this crummy acoustic. So he said, Hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you, you know, play through this, see what you think. And the amp had, um, had a spring reverb and I like, so for, like picked up the guitar and I, you know, I don't know if I strummed a G chord or whatever it did, but I hit it. And as soon as I hit that chord, I was just like, Whoa, this is completely different than the acoustic, like way cooler, you know, at the time, I appreciate acoustics too, but um, yeah. I was just like, that was it. I, I was just, there's some sort of like, you know, um, you know, aha moment that went off in my brain or, you know, like this is somehow really important to me to, you know, what just happened. Cause it, it was just like, um, you know, just kind of like send a shockwave through me. And that wasn't cool. because of the bad grounding on the, in the amplifier. <laughs> well, it was a silver tone amp. So, you know, from that, Probably, from that there was a lamp cord, there's a lamp cord, uh, you know, the death cap, uh, you know, uh, anyway, uh, that's another story, but so, uh, death cap. so yeah, so from there then, uh, so I, I, you know, not too long after that, I got my own, um, you know, cheap, uh, Les Paul copy. And if you remember, like when you bought a bad copy guitar in the seventies, it was a bad guitar. I mean, it was oh, not, dude. it wasn't like today where you can get a pretty good guitar for $99. Um, it's true. Like, you you could get a really terrible instrument that's really just only barely serviceable to 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 actually play and, and to to try to learn on because the intonation's probably out by a, a quarter step in each direction on the different e strings. Easy. Yeah. Easy. Um, could you sing could you talk through the pickups? Were the pickups basically like contact oh, yeah, microphones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Microphonics right. and you know, yeah. um warped necks and bad tuning pads, all that kind of stuff. Um but I did uh, I bought an electric guitar and I don't know what I got for an amp. It's my first amp. It wasn't a, it wasn't a gorilla with the tube stack button. That was, was that after <laughs> your era? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I might've got a, uh, was this, wasn't my first amp, was it? Trainer maybe? It was a lab, no, it was a lab series. It was ah. made by, it was Gibson owned. It was like Nor Norlin. Is that who they were? Yeah. Um, yes. A, a solid state lab series thing that the, a lot of Chicago blues guys actually use those for real. Is which that I right? can never it is. It's got a, it's got an actual uh, analog compressor on the front end. It's got a compressor, yeah. two knob compressor on the front. Um, and uh, so, yeah, my, uh, my uh, less Paul, cheap Les Paul copy and my, uh, my uh, lab series amp. And then, uh, yeah, I got, I don't know, a chorus pedal, I think a wah pedal and um, uh, electro harmonics, big, big muff. That, oh, dude, uh, you were sad. Like, yeah, yeah, I was so I, you know, was making all sorts of noise that, you know, no one else in my family wanted to hear. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was kind of like early on, I was just, yeah, I started, you know, getting effects and it was, you know, hearing a delay was like awesome. Like, oh my God, it, it echoes, you know, and um when we talk about like, you know, cause you and I've had conversations about effects and things like that. And, and it seems like, well, especially at this point, but I don't know at what point it got there, but it feels like you've got a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of 
of kind of you know a certain era of effects like if like if someone says was a small stone or a small clone or whatever sound like i mean you your brain immediately knows exactly what it does and uh, probably knows how to recreate it in some ways something yeah um i'm i'm not I, in some ways i think uh I've, I've got some of that stuff but um i'm really not a historian in that sense where i could you know tell you about the different variations or you know in 1978 they uh you know they went to this logo or they, you know, the, the little, uh, registered trademark, uh, you know, was, was down an eighth inch or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think I do have a kind of, a, um, you know, in my head, uh, an idea of the, you know, the sounds and the, the character and the personalities of, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of, I guess what you'd call it classics now. How is it you went from, from sort of like, you know, being a, a guitar guy and a clarinet person, and a, definitely a musician, you know, and then going to work for arguably one of the most important sort of chip microprocessor kind of manufacturers on the planet. I mean, how did that progression get you to wanting to work in technology? Um, it's really like the technology kind of was first in a certain way. Well, so, you know, I, you know, guitar music, all that stuff, you know, was you know, super important to me. But, you know, I was also as, you know, when I was uh, graduating high school, so I was like, all right, I got to figure out what's the next step. And I really kind of was debating, do I want to apply to Berkeley School of Music since I'm from Boston, you know, to be, uh, you know, certainly something to consider. And it was like, okay, do I want to do that? Or do I want to go um, into engineering? Because that's really kind of, you know, if you're talking about a reliable career, that's where you're kind of going to, you know, have food on eat. the table at least. Where you're going to eat. eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, I kind of, you know, I, I, I gave it some some good thought and decided I should, you know, study engineering and, um, you know, see what, you know, becomes of music, you know, kind of in a, in a nat more natural way. So I... I went to uh, engineering school at the University of Lowell and um, you know, graduated my electrical engineering degree. And Analog Devices was, you know, a local uh, company. And, and, you know, back then, and, and it was very... So I, I got out of college in the, you know, earlier, mid-80s. And um, Analog Devices was, you know, was still... It was like the star player in, in the area. They... Um, for all the people listening or watching that don't know about them, like, you know, to try to give an idea about their importance, their website is analog.com. Like, that's kind of like, like having a website like oxygen.com or, <laughs> or, or hydrogen.com. It's fairly elemental. They're, they're pretty important. So that, that's, it was a pretty amazing, probably first step to take into your career. Yeah, it, it was, it was, um, and, and the people there were like, I mean, basically it was almost like, a grad school kind of mentality. Everyone who worked there was really smart, um, uh, very, um, you know, sharing knowledge and um, uh, analog devices actually had their own kind of um, library of books that people at analog devices had written for analog devices. So it would be like, you know, Paul Brokaw, the, the, the father of the, uh, you know, temperature sensing tech, you know, they had people there whose names I had studied in textbooks in college were 
employed by analog devices. So it was really, um, you know, a, a pretty incredible uh, kind of environment. But because of that, like it, it was very serious. Mm. And I, I always, there's a certain kind of like, you know, pressure. Like, I mean, it was just kind of like, um, kind of seemed, it, it just felt like it wasn't an environment where you kind of kicked back and joked around a lot. You know, it was like, you know, you're, you better, you know, you're serious. No, and the boss is walking by. It's oh shit, man. I better <laughs> work on this, these equations a little better. Um, but <laughs> it was, it was kind of, I just felt like, I don't know, it's it really buttoned down. And I, and I, it, you know, really, I, I kind of just felt like I didn't, I didn't see myself kind of being, you know, a lot of people there that was, you know, their careers back in the day where you stay with a company like that for, 30 whatever years and you retire and you've done really, really well for yourself. Um, but I was like, ah, I don't know. I just don't, um, I don't feel it. I, I just, I felt like um, I wanted to kind of explore a little bit more. So after three years at analog devices, I decided that I was going to come out to California and go to Musicians Institute in Hollywood, which, you know, every month in Guitar Player Magazine, you'd see the big, you know, GIT. It yeah, was yeah. the place to be in those days. I mean, so what yeah. year did you get to GIT? Was it 80? 88. So, yeah, I, I worked from analog devices 85 through 88. And then in 88, I moved out to California, went to GIT. Oh, totally. So, so so I'm trying to think. So who was there at the time? So it's so my buddy Scott, Scott Anderson, Anderson was there. Scott yeah. Anderson was like there all the time. Uh, right. Frank Gambale had just left, I think. Was um, Joe DiOrio still there? Joe DiOrio was there. Howard Roberts was still there. Oh, um, man. That's yeah, a wonderful uh, time to go to that school. That's amazing. Yeah, it, yeah, it was it was really uh, you know a great time, and um, yeah, so many uh, uh, great players. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the names. Um, Tommy Tedesco came by and did a uh, like a two hour like I mean he he's basically was a, a one man f toward a force of comedy and music and and he's amazing. And he's amazing. Yeah. I, I actually got a chance. I got a chance to to see him speak for a couple hours at the local music store in Utah where I was a kid. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he, he, all the, all the shtick with the banjo, yeah. that's how he did yeah, all yeah. The, the stuff in, in Shogun. And, but yeah. uh, he signed my book and it's great. I've, I've got a copy of his book, which if you guys, any of you people listening, if you ever want to learn, you know, how to, how to read like a super crazy person, buy Tommy's old book if you can find it. But he signed it for me and it says, thanks for the 99 cents, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. He, he was something else. So yeah, I mean, you get guys like that coming by and um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun. And it, it, it's a 12 month program and it was really kind of like, really was like a, a, like a sabbatical, you know, I, it was just, you know, playing guitar, talking guitar, thinking about guitar, you know, like, so I, I was 25 when I went out there, I guess, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, so me and a couple other guys were like the old men of the school because almost everyone else, you know, was just kind of out of high school or, um, you know, they, they, this was like kind of, you know, you know, community college uh, for them or something, but you know, it was, you know, it was a good time. I made, I made some good friends there. And uh, then after the, uh, then after the year was out, I was like, okay, so now what am I going to do? Um, sorry. Should I turn off my phone here? It's like making just, some, maybe just turn it on silent. Maybe it doesn't have to turn it off, but maybe just yeah. silent. Now they're, they're very, um, those are extremely aggressive uh, alert sounds, Pete. Uh, they're, they're quite sonorous. Here's my phone, by the way. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete, 
Pete still has a flip phone. He does not participate in any modern uh, technology other than the fact that he makes some of the badass best effect pedals <laughs> on the planet. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. Um, so, so you're at GIT though. So you're there and, and you're hanging out with all these people and you're, you know, you were one of the, one of the oldest students. So you were probably pretty high up in terms of skill level compared to people that still, that mm -hmm. got there. What was it? What was it about your experience there that, that made you, or just made you decide not to do that as a career? Like, what, what was it there that, that made you think, eh, I should go do something else? There are like, there are a couple things. Um, so like, you know, at, at GIT, they, they, they kind of place you in groups based on, you know, ability where it's like, if you're traveling around, you know, you have a certain number of kind of core classes in a sense. Um, and um, so they want people kind of hanging together that are in the same level so that, you know, everyone can get the most, you know, out of the learning experience at whatever level. So I was in, I was in the top group. Um, but the top guys in the top group, you know, it's like there were three or four guys that I looked at in this group that, you know, in the group, the group had maybe like 15 or 20 people in this, you know, right. Whatever group A, group A we'll call it or whatever. Um, right. Like the top four or five guys there were just like so much better than me. It was like, holy crap, these guys are really good. And it's like, and they're going to be really struggling to compete for things, uh, you know, for, for gigs. And then you, um, it's like, you know, my, you know, my reading or skill, you know, like, like I, wa I wasn't like, I was like, I couldn't be a studio musician. I, I, I wouldn't be able to kind of promote myself. I'm just like, I get, I think I kind of took a, you know, an honest stare in the mirror and said, you know, this has been fun, but you know, there's a, there's a difference between the guys who can be on call and show up at gigs and get things done and and um and where I am, which is kind of like, you know, hey, I can appreciate what they're doing and I can see the difference, but I'm also um, not there. Like you ever see um the Amadeus movie with uh oh, totally. yeah. and totally. Salieri? He was basically yeah. cursed because he could hear the genius of um of uh, Mozart, but he couldn't he couldn't do it. So it's like yeah. I'm Salieri. I'm like yeah, I, I just don't got it, man. So well, it's uh, interesting, though, because because that's that's a um, there are a lot of people that I'm sure that we both have met over the years that that are not um, that are not that self aware. I mean, I, I remember Bill Withers once told me, uh, you know, I hung with him quite a bit um, when I was younger, and he once told me, uh, I think a lot most people are more comfortable looking out a window than looking in a mirror. You know, and it and it's 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 a it's a pretty a pretty serious thing to do for your personality, for your soul, to really look at yourself and be honest about what it is that you want to be able to do, but and and what you're capable of doing. But I'm wondering as well, was there an element to it where you wanted to protect the fun of guitar? You know, like and the reason I ask is because like Henderson's a buddy of mine, Scott Henderson's good, good old pal. We were neighbors for for 15 years or whatever. Um, and he once uh, made a statement, which, which I have always thought was interesting, which was, I would rather use my guitar as a paintbrush than as a broom. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, that 
believe me, uh, even guys that are using the guitars like grooms are still kicking it because it's awesome. It's way, mm -hmm. you know, it's way better than, than all sorts of other things you could be doing. However, I understand if you're at a certain point in, in your, your life and your career and, and where you want to take things, if you want to use the guitar only the way you want to use it and protect the fun of it, you know, maybe the idea of doing something else for a living was also better in a way. I don't know if that's, if that resonates, but. Yeah, I, I think what, um, you know, what kind of helped that decision, you know, along to pretty quickly was since I was in Los Angeles now and I did have an engineering degree and experience, uh, you know, in engineering, this is where the music companies, you know, are some have headquarters totally. here, certainly offices if they're not headquartered in here. Um, yep. So I, I, that's, I thought, well, this is an opportunity. Um, again, before the internet, I, you know, got out a pen and a paper and found some addresses and wrote some letters, dear, you know, sir, to whom may concern. And I sent out some letters and um, one of them was to Elisis, which nice. is uh, right there. And uh, it was on off of Jefferson there, kind of Culver City, uh, Los Angeles area, which uh, I was living in Hollywood at the time. So, you know, probably about a 20 minute uh, drive. And um, it's kind trying, of funny. What, when you, what products would have been out at that point? I'm trying to think what, what was, what was there? What was, what was out then? Midiverb 2 something? Midiverb 2 was out. Um, Quadverb, I think was just like on the cusp of uh, coming out at that point. Um, Midiverb 3, I can't remember if Midiverb 3 came out after Quadverb. I think it might have, but anyway, it was it was that time. Like the HR sixteen uh, drum machine was out, and the MNT eight. And, yeah. um, but uh, at that point, um, ADAT, I don't even know if it had started. Like the concept had even been thought of at that point. You know, when I, you know, you know, started at, at Alesis. But right. it's kind of funny to think about. Like, I wrote a letter to Alesis, and then it's like. I know then you just wait for a call, like maybe like nine days <laughs> later, it's like, oh, hey, oh, Elisa, I great. You got my letter, you know. Um, it's it's like they, there's people from LinkedIn haven't responded yet. What the heck, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I, I got, you know, interviewed with with uh, Elisa and, um, you know, started uh, started working there. And it was, you know, they had this this thing where like everyone has to start in the repair department. And then like when an engineering project, the next engineering project like, gets going, it'd be like, hey, let's take someone from repair to like get, bring them into engineering. They so were it was very, like the uh, mail room. So like, it was like, the, like, the, like it was kind of like the, the mail room at Elisa's yeah. kind of the start. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I, you know, I was, I was repairing, you know, quad verbs and, and drum machines and MMT8s and, you know, you, um, cause you, you do learn, you know, the, the idea was like, you get to learn about our products and do things. And it's like, you know, you do, you, you, you learn like which chips go bad and, and you know, <laughs> how to clean the keypads and, you know, um, you know, there, there's troubleshooting involved and all that kind of stuff, but um, yeah. you're not really learning too much of the meat and potatoes about, you know, you're not learning anything about why the uh, MMT uh, or the um, Mediverb 2 swell reverb sounds as cool as it does. You just, you just right. know if the, if the thing's making a bunch of static, you know, like, yeah, the DAC is messed up and you replace it. But anyway, right. so that was what they did. Um, and it turned out, and it was a lot, I, I, I met friends there that I, I'm still friends with today. And, um, it was a real fun environment. It paid terribly. Like I took <laughs> an enormous cut and pay from analog devices to, to do repair at, at, at Lisa's, 
but it was fun. Like we just had a great time that we were like this crew at work that, you know, we had fun at work. We had fun after work. Um, but then after like a year of doing that, I was like, well, you know, I took a year off to go to GIT and now I feel like I took another year off kind of in this repair department. But, you know, so like, um, basically I, um, I kind of, I said, you know, I, I told my manager, what I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. It's like, you know, either I got to like get into real engineering or something, but I can't just keep right. repairing stuff. So he said, well, you know, um, we're starting this, this ASIC group application specific integrated circuit. Um, cause Alesis was actually doing their own, um, gate array ASICs, it's gate array, not, not gate array, um, right. in, uh, they were doing their own sports drink. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. It was a side project. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so like the, the, the signal processing that, that they did was, you know, um, aided centrally around this, um, uh, basically it would be this kind of like, you know, blank canvas, uh, chip that you would, you could, um, basically set it up to perform the kind of logic functions and, and operations that you want. And then the, the fab, uh, the fabrication house that makes the chips would then produce those chips for you. And it'd have, you know, uh, um, you know, it'd be, then it would be your custom chip. You buy this chip and it's, right. you know, been, you know, programmed to your, uh, you know, to your specifications. So they were doing that, but the owner of Elisa's Keith Barr wanted to actually get into full custom integrated circuits. So they were starting this new kind of, you know, venture, which was going to be, um, you know, directly feeding the, the music products, but making full, uh, you know, 15 layer, uh, custom integrated circuits. So it's like, well, I have three years background in integrated analog devices. You're like, yeah. Like, devices. So, yeah. Like, so then I started working in the ASIC group, um, at, at Alesis, which was great. Cause I got to work directly like shoulder to shoulder with, with Keith Barr for, for many years. And nice. he's, you know, I don't use the, the term genius very much, but I mean, he, I, he was a true genius. He, he was like a ninth grade dropout. He dropped out of school and opened a company making Geiger counters like when he was 16 years old. So <laughs> how random is that? Like what, Geiger counters of all things? Ge Ge Geiger counters. Yeah. He, yeah and he, uh, he, he wanted some, uh, he needed vacuum tubes with cer certain specifications. So he went to some glass blower and some stuff, you know, and, and, and ended up like making his own custom vacuum tubes to put in his, his Geiger counters. Um, but that's uh, unreal. Yeah. Unreal. So that's the kind of guy Keith was like, he just would see an opportunity and he would do it. He would just like, nothing would stop him. And, um, th that's basically how ADAT came to, he, he saw the vision. Um, there were like so many roadblocks during the development of it. Um, he got a scanning electron microscope so he could like, um, sputter it with gold and look at the, um, the actual, uh, the magnetic, uh, orientations of the tape to find, you know, like that level of, it's a helical scan head, right? So it's, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and that was just, you know, I mean, one after another, there were just these things that were just like, this is impossible, but he was like kind of single-handedly. I mean, he, he had, he had help in a sense, but like, he's the guy that like, if he goes away, this project is never happening. Um, but so and it was world, really, was, and the world will never experience error seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And any of us old ADAT people, I, I owned yeah. eight at one point, and oh, okay, there yeah, were yeah. always four that worked and four that were on a shelf getting repaired. And error mm -hmm. seven, I, I cleaned the, oh man, <laughs> that either wheel, I was, I was, I was a tech. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was uh, crazy. But the, the thing is that at the time, even having, having four on, on hold and four was still way cheaper than any other option you could get to record digitally. Um, totally. A, I mean, a dash machine was 375 grand, like a, yeah. like a Sony dash deck at that yeah. point, you yeah. know, was, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was, yeah, it was like, it basically it like, you know, Alesis was, you know, doing very well and, you know, was well known before ADAT. And then ADAT was just like, you know, you know, full rocket ship to the moon kind of thing. I mean, it was crazy. They were, um, they were minting money at that point. I mean, it yeah, just, yeah, they, yeah. They just, I mean, how, how big did, so you, that, that was probably another interesting thing to experience for you in the sense that, I mean, it must've been a quite a small company when you started. I mean, how many people were there when you started? When I started, it was, I'm trying to think, was it maybe like 40 people, 30 or 40 people maybe? Oh, and it got to be like 300 or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So yeah. that's exponential growth to see that happen oh, yeah, yeah. while you're there. That must have been kind of disconcerting in a way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, when I, when I started, it was like, hey, we, you know, we're in this building in this little, um, you know, industrial um it wasn't really an industrial park. It was just kind of, it was a few buildings like, Hey, we're in this building. Um, and then it was like, Oh, we're going to get that building. And, um, by the time I left Elisa's in 2000, it was like, well, actually, because they moved to Santa Monica and we stayed uh, back in Culver city that that was going ahead a little too far. But anyway, in, in that Culver city thing, we got to building five, you know, we were, we're all in building one. And it was like building one and build, oh, I'm building three. Yeah. Then, and it was like, oh, the warehouse is another building, and then we got this, you know. So, um, yeah, there was uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of expansion, a lot of hiring, and um, you know, it was it was still it was still a lot of fun. And um, you know, I was so in in the ADAT, there were like there were a, a number of different integrated circuits. There was like um, there was specifically um, uh, a read uh, amplifier preamp that would you know read the data off. That there was a write amplifier that would um, energize the coils to write the, the magnetic data onto the tape. Um, I did both the read and write preamp, um, but they, they were really, they were designed, you know, Keith kind of like, you know, I was like the guy to, you know, implement his, his vision of, of, of what these things would be. You know, like we need to be, needs to be super fast so we can only use NMOS, you know, none of that PMOS stuff, you know, you got an extra you know layer of oxidation to, you know, to slow down the time constants. But um, so yeah, Keith, you know, he was, you know, leading that kind of charge. But then there were, um, we had our own um, custom A to D and D to A's uh, in the ADAT too that were, you know, we, we made. And these were like, um, you know, full on uh, semiconductor mask sets. You know, each each chip had, you know, if you do a circuit board, you might have a four layer circuit board, you know, um, so right. hey, you got some ground plane stuff. Whatever. Well, these were essentially 15 layer circuit boards because you'd have N layers and P layers and epi pockets and, um, you know, so forth to, to make an entire integrated circuit. Um, right. And, you know, we designed our own, um, you know, the chips had DRAMs and, um, and SRAMs. And, you know, that was all part of like, oh, okay, we're going to need a, you know, 10K DRAM for this thing. So let's, you know, you, you basically, you, the way you make a, you know, a, an 8K DRAM is you make one cell and then replicate it 8,000 times. Um, right. <laughs> and, 
you just have to make sure that they kind of connect the right way when you, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot, you know, I learned a lot there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot of, you know, signal processing concepts, um, from the A to D and D to A converters and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, so I, like around the year 2000, I had been at Elisa's for 11 years and it just, I felt like time for change again. So, um, I watch you work now and I, and I see the stuff that you've done at Thryman as a company and stuff. And it's, it's, it's very applied, you know, you're, you're making gear to make a noise that you're looking to make as opposed to doing a small component of something that someone else is going to, you know what I mean? It's like, like, were you disconnected some way from the experience of making the final thing? Is that kind of what? Absolutely. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was part of it. Cause you know, I'd, I'd be working on, you know, a chip or whatever. And it's like, Oh, in two years that they're going to use this in the, um, uh, Q was it the Q essay? What's the, the keyboard? Uh, synth? uh, the quadrasynth was the, quadrasynth, uh, yeah, yeah. yes. Quadrasynth was the, if I remember correctly, the longest, uh, period that I can remember in MI from announcement to ship. I think it, it, <laughs> it took almost two years from yeah. the time it was announced to yes, the time that it yeah. actually sold. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was, it was on obtainium for a long time. That one. <laughs> But, you know, things like that, you know, we, we were working on chips like that for, for that, that, you know, are you're, you're really kind of in a in a microcosm of, of, of the product. You know, you're you're really work or in the case of converters, you're just like, you know, the, there, there's really no connection with a particular product. It's just like these need to be, you know, convert analog to digital with a certain, you know, set of, um, you know, uh, you know, dynamic range and noise specs and all that kind of stuff. So, right. um so I did. I did feel like, um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm in a music company and, and this is cool, but I'm not really, I'm not really. I don't feel a connection with with the products. So, um, from Elisa's, I went to Line Six, and um, I knew a number of the people at uh, at Line Six. In fact, the the Line Six guys had been um, consultants for Elisa's during pretty much the whole duration, I guess, and, and until they got, until they actually became line six before that, they were fast forward fast designs. Forward, and right. they, yeah. yeah. And they, they were really the, the, the real engineering arm of Elisa's for these, the product development. And then during the ADAT, they were very involved too. Um, just from, from my recollection, you know, the, you know, Keith was the guy who was just kind of like pushing it forward, like by sheer will. Um, but the fast forward team, um, you know, and, and, and some, some internal releases guys, of course, too, were, you know, keeping the rest of the project moving forward and, and you know, developing. It's a complicated system, of course. But so at line six, you know, I was reunited with uh, people I'd known in the past. And, and it's also some guys I'd worked with at Elisis, um, Elisis employees that also come over to line six. So it was a very familiar environment. Um, sure. And they, uh, they said, you know, we don't really have something specific uh, in mind, but, you know, we've been thinking about this guitar, the idea of making the same principles of, of our amplifier, applying that to a guitar. So you can have a guitar that can sound like other guitars. Other guitars, are you interested in taking a look at that? And I said, yeah, sure. And um, so that was that was a really uh, a great experience because, you know, I basically had a blank, piece of paper in front of me and it was like, well, 
you know, see what you can do, see what you can figure out. So I had to kind of figure out what it is I wanted to figure out. And, um, you know, uh, <laughs> little by little made some progress here and there, and, you know, start studying about some stuff, about some pickups and, you know, uh, the responses and, you know, strings and how, you know, we're going to use piezos and those respond to force and not, not uh, motion. And that we're going to make the right kind of conversions there. And, you know, there was, it was really involved, um, but it was, it was gratifying because it was something that really kind of, um, where at Alesis, I was generally kind of implementing Keith's vision to more or less his sure. prescribed degree. So, um, right. It was kind of neat, but it's like, okay. I mean, I, I also beyond the product thing, I did feel a little bit like I needed to try to like kind of get out from that protective, like I'm just going to, you know, I, I'm going to do what Keith tells me to do because that's what sure. I'm here for. It's like, well, you know, what can I do? So, so I, you know, working on Variax was rewarding from that standpoint. And then once the product kind of got to past, you know, concept stage, it was like, hey, this is actually going to be, this can actually be a real product that that we can uh, that we can sell. I got I got involved also in some of the sound design aspects of like, well, you know, how can we you know craft these sounds and what it's capable of doing? And um, and I, I found I really felt it was much more satisfying to to be working on a product and be closely closely associated with you know the the end result. Um, you know, it's a little bit scary because it can be like uh you know what if they hate it you know that kind of stuff like, what if it sucks <laughs> you can't please everybody but um it uh I, I just found like okay this i feel much more like i'm closer to where i want to be um and uh so you know that was that was good experience after that we did the acoustic variax which probably has actually more realistically practical application yeah. Um, as an instrument than, um, than the electric variax in, in a sense. And that was, you know, another set of discoveries to make, you know, with body resonances and, you know, um, you know, getting the right kind of equipment to, to measure it. And I had a pretty cool little system where I could, you know, tap the bridge with, uh, with some sensors on it and, uh, and send some information from my spectrum analyzer over to my computer. And then I had written a program that would kind of like dissect the various resonances and, and then create a filter bank. That's like, that's, that's this thing. And then when you try it and it sounds like it, then you're like, oh, this works. And that's always, that's always exciting. You know, looking at the way that you can describe a physical object and a physical and a, and a very complex machine in digital language, you know, where do you start or how do you think about it? I assume it must be different each time, but how do you think about getting down and figuring out what you have to know before you can even start measuring what it is that you have to know. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is different for each, each, uh, project, of course, you know, I mean, I think for any of these, it's like, you know, start small and, and, and build off, you know, off this, the, you know, your first small success, you know, do something like, hey, I want to, you know, um, I, I mean, I, it's for the Varex specifically, like, you know, a lot of it starts off with just kind of, you know, reading and, and uh, absorbing and, and thinking about, you know, uh, it, how things work, and, you know, and we have, uh, you know, there are a lot of other engineers, uh, you know, really smart people that, you know, we, we all would talk, you know, to each other too. And I'm um, in fact, that was actually one of my first 
I mean, Greg worked at, at Elise's as well. Um, I knew him from Elise's, but I don't think we had really, you know, probably spent much time. We were in different buildings and stuff. But right. when I was thinking more, like about the pickup, I was like, well, I need, you know, I need to, to I want to model the, you know, the response, the, the electrical response of this pickup. And it's like, okay, you know, you got a coil and you got some, um, you get some loss and, you know, you get, you get some, uh, you know, capacitance and, and the way I was like, I was drawing the model in a couple of different ways, but ultimately I went and asked Greg, you know, who's working, it might've been consulting um, for line six at the time. And uh, I, you know, we talked about pickups for a while and, you know, right. Greg thought about it. He's like, yeah, well, you know, you know, I, you know, you should have the, the coil resistance is, you know, going to be here and then in the series of this and, you know, this parasites, parasitic effects going to be, um, you know, in parallel over here. And, and, and I was like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, when, when you don't know things, you know, asking, asking for help or having a discussion with other people is always, you know, a, a, you know, a good thing. And, and it, in the, at the start of a project, for sure, you know, if, um, if you're kind of trying to figure out where to get get started, it's sometimes those ideas can be sparked from a conversation, even if it's a conversation where the person doesn't think that they've been helpful to you. You realize, no, no, you've you've done things that now I'm, you know, my mind is is got uh, is on a different track or something. But yeah. So so when you were at at, at line six, you know, and and you were getting a chance to work on products, very successful products, because you know, Variax did very well. Um, both the acoustic and the electric versions did really well, mm-hmm. you know, so you're working on products and, and you're, you're getting a chance to, to truly, you know, use your creative brain and your technical brain to be able to make a product and, and see it come to life. What was it that made you decide to move on again and do your own thing? Um, it was, it's just kind of a, a timing thing, really. Um, and I, I was working, in fact, this was where uh, at Line 6, I met Dave Freeling, you know, one of the other co-founders, and he was involved in Variax uh, much in the same way that we um, started, you know, had our working relationship here. Um, Dave, Dave was like the firmware engineer, and he was um, he was kind of setting up the the code base and it, the you know interaction with the peripheral peripheral c- controls and um, you know he set me up with like okay here's where you do your code um, <laughs> do do so, code here do code here and um, <laughs> so you know it was a uh, it, it it became you know we had a, a very kind of successful uh, collaboration we you know kind of had our own uh, you know language and uh, you know understood uh, you know, how how to work with each other you know really effortlessly effortlessly so um uh dave had we had finished um Varex acoustic had just uh just shipped and dave had given his notice um and dave and greg were going to start um this new venture damage control along with uh, Lucian too, who was, um, had also worked at, um, at line six, but was not working uh, there at the time. So Dave told me about this venture. He's like, Hey, me and Greg and Lucian are going to start this new company. And, you know, we had just finished acoustic variax and I felt kind of like, okay, that's done. And, right. um, 
I know some of the um, the, the next things. Uh, I know uh, Line Six was looking at um, you know moving some of that uh, some of the technology into a software um, uh, driven um, you know product and things like that. Where I felt like um, you know that's not something that I'm going to really uh, be able to you know that's that's kind of not where my brain is at, and they probably weren't looking for me to specifically do that, but it just seemed like a good break at that point is like, I'm kind of interested. I, I kind of want to see what these guys, you know, got cooking and what, what's going to happen with them. And it just seemed like the time is right because I'm, I'm not in the middle of a project. I'm not right. like going to like leave, leave them high and dry. Um, and uh, so it really just was a matter of timing. And I thought, um, you know, give it a shot. Why not? You know, I was, I was probably, you know, un, you know, I didn't have any real, actual realistic views of what might happen. I had some unrealistic views, but uh, <laughs> but that's that's what you know allowed me to take the plunge because you know sure. you, you don't know what you're jumping into. So I just uh, I just decided to you know see what uh, what would be up with uh, with this new venture. Well, it's interesting because the the sort of um, the stuff you're talking about all the way back from analog devices about you know, not wanting to wear a white lab coat and not wanting to have a Monday morning meeting at 9 a.m. and not wanting to have TPS reports and right. red staplers, you yeah. know, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to need that tomorrow by 2.30. <laughs> you know, um, not wanting that kind of culture, you know, the culture that you guys set up in the company is very much not that, you know, it is very much a, you know, for the, for those of you guys that, that, that are listening or watching, I mean, I can tell you right now that the three founders, have seen more movies between the three of them <laughs> uh, than than most humans have imbibed and can basically quote on an hourly basis basically the entire <laughs> film all the time. So it's it's always like trying to wade through movie quotes like oh, okay where was it? So Brewster's Millions? Gee, maybe, you know, I didn't you know, see some, that. No, like <laughs> some, sometimes they're really sometimes they're really obvious and sometimes they're so wonderfully obtuse. It's like. Dennis Miller before he decided to start trying to kill caribou or something. But um, <laughs> you just mentioned the idea of having um, a bunch of collaborative conversations that help spark, you know, new directions in your research. And, and those things must be really fantastic to have in a, a product development environment. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, you've got a heavy DSP guy, a heavy analog guy, a heavy firmware guy, you know, you guys can basically make everything just the three of you. And then all the rest of us just sweep the floors and, you know, try to, you know, make some podcasts and crap. <laughs> I, luckily, lucky, lucky for us, we've, uh, we've also, uh, we, we've brought in some, uh, some fresh young, young minds who are uh, propelling the, the company forward as we speak, which is, uh, you know, uh, important. Um, so uh, it is, it is fun to be able to kind of, you know, um, have ideas and, and um, just kind of act on them and, and implement them. And um, like I said, we've we've got some some you know new new sources of, of ideas that are you know doing some exciting things that are going to um, make my job easier and, and more fun. Uh, still, uh, by you know presenting me with um, you know more tools and and sounds and technology and techniques to um to kind of you know further to go further uh, than we've than we currently are even 
you know, we can talk about your brain and and your your technical acumen all we want, but a lot of the 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 sort of the Strymon thing comes back to your ears. And we were talking about Starlab, um, and you were telling me about the genesis of what happened between Starlab being a reverb, and then all of a sudden having car plus strong synthesis in it. And basically you were saying that you were listening to some reverb tales while you were in development and heard the beginnings of something sounding synthetic in the reverb tale and thought, oh, wow, maybe we should try to actually do some synth stuff in there. Yeah, I think probably specifically uh, it was when, um, it wasn't actually the reverb tale, but I'm nitpicking out that it matters, but it was it, it was in the delay um, at, at high um at high feedback because the the first idea was hey let's have star lab let's turn its pre-delay into actually more of a full feature delay and you can you know it, it's just going to be a, a real big value added to to what this module can do and it'll add like a ton of really cool sounds so then as i was just turning out the feedback range um you know and the because it's a pre-delay it, it essentially gets down to close to pretty much zero delay so of course when you've got high feedback and a you know once you get the short enough delay now you're getting you know just a sustaining oscillation in a sense but right. um so you know just by itself it was like oh this this um you know it might need work but you can you can hear how okay this is basically you know the start of a carpal strong algorithm and you know that that in particular is an algorithm that's you know been around for a bit but there are kind of some things you can do within it that we did that kind of help, um, I think, enhance its, you know, its tonality and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm, I guess I, you know, I listen for opportunities to try to see if there's things that we can do that, that are, you know, going to be, you know, musical and, and useful. And the, the trick is always to try to, you know, you don't want to come up with some kind of crazy sound just for the sake of, you know, for preset 37, crazy. you, you, you yeah, want to have a crazy sound for preset 37 yeah. so that you can see no, exactly yeah. what it can do at once. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in the context of, of, you know, a multi-effect or something, it's okay, you know, for wacky stuff, but like, you know, you don't want to kind of try to base a product around something that's going to be a bit of a novelty. So, um, you know. well, the Miku pedal, uh, you know, probably has not, oh, sold, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably not sold enough units to really, yeah, to, uh, <laughs> but it's amazing. That is pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, there's there's something about stuff like that. It's just it just it just there is. It's good that some people are still crazy enough to put yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Like that. I, mean, I was because you would. I enjoyed I enjoyed watching the the video on it. I was like, <laughs> we're, we're talking about the uh, for those of you at home. We're talking about the Mrs. Smith. Uh, she uh, did a shred guitar thing only with the Miku pedal. It's just the video is just ridiculous. It's it's hilarious. But 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 speaking about about ears, so you're basically the mix engineer, mastering engineer for the company. You know, I think about, you know, my life, you know, long before any of this marketing stuff was all studio work and and mixing and records and stuff. You know, and, and everybody has rooms they feel comfortable in, speakers they prefer to get the right thing. Like how how anal about that kind of stuff are you, or do you do you find that you're able to hear what you need to hear in a vast array of, of listening environments and rooms and speakers and things? Um, I have a setup that um, 
usually doesn't vary too much. And um, the monitors I really like to listen are actually the Alesis uh, M1 Actives. Okay. Um, and I'm showing a picture of your desk at the moment. I'm trying to see if there's actually a picture of those speakers. I don't know if there is, but here's you with the Benson. But got it. So the M1s, got it? Yeah, the M1 Actives. And um, I know that they're probably, uh, you know, not what most you most commonly, um, you know, think of for for a studio monitor. But uh, they, you know, I kind of, I, I have a long, you know, relationship with them and, and I'm comfortable with them. Um, right. And a lot of times, don't always, but, I, you know, I, I have this, um, this Agile uh, um, AL3000 guitar that's got a... Um, uh, Seymour Duncan 59 in the neck and a, a GFS, a, like really cheap, but good a GFS. Uh, I, I, have a GF, I have a, one of those GFS, uh, the, the, the Gretsch pickup kind of thing. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. It's fine. It works. Yeah, yeah. I got it in Sir. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I've got this it's yeah. a PAF style in the, in the bridge. Um, and that guitar, uh, it's, it's got an ebony fingerboard in the, the 59, um, it's a little bit bright, so it's, it's interesting because it's 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 a humbucker guitar, but it's it's really got kind of a pretty good snap to it. So um, I find that I, I use that guitar a lot when I'm you know developing sound, just because it's that combination with the speakers. Uh, it's just something that I'm I'm used to. So um, it's it's not always about like to, you know to a certain extent if you've established the sounds, you want to hear other sounds in relationship to the sound you've established. So like sure. the, the, the goldenness of the particular sound you started with isn't really that critical in, in a sense, you know, you, you if you kind of know where you're coming from and then you know where you are relative to where you've come from. Um, sure. So, you know, so that's, that's the setup I feel familiar with. Um, I can, when we first moved to our, offices here, I think it was before we had the carpet in, um, well, we, we put up a lot of sound treatment on the walls. Um, right. If you remember, like, it's yeah, a, we had like the 20 foot big, ladder, big, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> concrete and, you know, OSHA approved, I'm, I'm sure, but, um, <laughs> probably so, not before we did that, I forget what I was working on at the time we moved in here. It might've been, it might've been the start of. I don't know if it was Big Sky, maybe, but um, I had started, you know, it was just in the early stages of it. And I was fighting with the actual reverb of our building, you know, and it's just sure. like, I was like, yeah, so we, we got the, the sound uh, and that that kind of knocked it all down. Um, so uh, I can, you know, as long as the acoustic environment is, is you know, doesn't have some sort of real terrible flaw, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at just you know, going with it. But what, when I'm, when I'm coding, writing equations or thinking about things like there could be a train going by or, you know, a baseball game three feet away. Like I don't hear it. Like I'm just zoned in. I, That's I, amazing. You can talk to me and I won't hear you cause I'm thinking, but if I'm listening to something and you know, somebody snapped their fingers, I'd be like, wait a second, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> You know, I, I, I can't, I have zero tolerance for, 
outside noise when I'm trying to listen, like when I'm making a critical assessment, like I, 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 I can't shut anything out. So it's, it's funny, but if I'm not listening, if I'm doing the other part of it, then I, I don't hear anything. I bought a, when I, when I bought my house in LA, uh, in 03 or whatever, 04, um, I was standing out front and it was, it was in Eagle Rock, Pasadena area. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing out front of the house and I heard this just unbelievably roll rumble. And I thought it was JPL because jet, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is just over the hill. And yeah. I thought, you know, when I was in college in Utah, I was, you know, you could hear them testing the, the uh, space shuttle engines at Thiokol 50, oh, okay. 50 miles away because it was in a bunker and it would shake right. the ground like in another town. And I thought, oh, it's got to be JPL. So when I was building the studio, I, I went hardcore. Like I, I took the garage and I built two Crazy. walls that each wall had an STC of like 60, basically. So they were mm-hmm. like massive vinyl, hat channel, you know, Isomax clips, I, six inches of air. And then another one of those is awful. And one night I was mixing, actually mixing. And I heard, it was the middle of August. And I heard this like tink, tink sound. I couldn't figure out what it was. And I thought, what the hell is that? It's August. It's not raining, but it sounded like rain on a gutter. And then I realized it was the bubbles in my Diet Coke can. <laughs> and I said, and I realized then you've screwed up. You're never going to make a nice sounding track in the studio ever. And you've just wasted all of this money and time. Yeah. And it was true. It was true. Cause yeah, it was yeah. so dead that yeah. it was, you had no perspective yeah. of the outside world at all. It's awful. <laughs> oh, and that noise was not JPL. It was my neighbor playing mist. In his home theater, he had like oh, two thousand watt subs, that. and he was playing. He was playing like first person shooter games with his subwoofers okay, on, nice. and I was like, "What is that? It's going to get into good. an acoustic guitar track." I don't know. <laughs> Before we go, uh, you can't see this, but I'm going to I'm going to show them the picture of you in 1989 in the forest. Oh, with, with, with your guitar. This <laughs> picture is so fantastic. There's something about it that I absolutely love. It's just. You built this guitar, right? This is one that you actually built? It, uh, the sad part is it was actually a 1969 Telecaster that I, that I bought in, in 1978. It was, it was post CBS. No one, you know, it was like the dregs of oh, post CBS, you loser. Um, and it, was, like, it was three, but, it was a three bolt. It was three yeah. bolt, man. Loser. <laughs> but, uh, so, but I, I kind of Steve Morse it. So I probably, I think in that picture, it has four pickups and three toggle switches. And, you know, I, I took a belt sander to it and, 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 you know, put a mahogany stain on it. And, you know, um, this was long before I realized that I had something that I would later on in life, wish I'd never done any of this stuff too. But. It's, got a, it's got a strat neck as well on it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think that was actually a Kubicki uh, strat. Remember? Phil? Oh, Philip. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Philip. Now wait. So, so you can't see this, but I, I was determined that I didn't want you to feel called out that I showed an old picture of you. So I have a picture of mine from the, almost the same era that unfortunately <laughs> shows me in what looks like dreads uh, playing a jazz gig in shorts in college. But unfortunately it was a perm. Anyway, um, <laughs> and you, you, if you don't comb or brush a, a perm for very long, it just turns into dreads. And then, dreads. anyway, but I, you know, anyway, um, but thank you very much for taking the time. And we'll, we'll absolutely have you again. And, and thank all of you guys. Remember, I'm going to put the contact back up here at the top. So remember the email, if you want to ask questions or leave comments is strikast at strymon.net. 
And the phone number, if you want to leave questions or comments, is 310-817-0404. And if you are international, remember to put the old plus one in front. And ladies and gentlemen, that shall do it for the first inaugural Strymon episode of StrikeCast. So thank you guys very much, Pete. Thank you very much. And we will, uh, we will see you again. Cheers. Bye.